We've been, uh, for the last couple of weeks, talking about oscillation. And that may seem like a strange thing if you haven't been here the last couple of weeks. But the concept is, is that life is always in motion. Life is always moving. Life is always oscillating. And even when we think that we've evolved enough that it should plateau, that we should be able to flip that switch and get into that sweet spot and just stay there. You know, we had it in conjunction with uh, Pentecost. Boy, when you hit the heights like a Pentecost moment, you're filled with the Spirit and every, all that power is there. You think, man, that's just going to continue on. It's got to continue on. It's so powerful. And yet you look at the lives of the uh, first followers of Jesus and it just kept oscillating. They just kept going up and down. So we've been talking about this oscillation in terms of the ups and downs, in terms of the, the way that external circumstances change and the way that we emotionally sink or rise depending on those changing circumstances. This morning I wanted to continue this talk about oscillation, but in a little different way. You know, There's another, that external oscillation that's kind of felt is up and down. There's an internal oscillation that's more felt side to side, if you will. It's not changing circumstances, it's changing perceptions that we have about the circumstances. The way we look at things, it's kind of our mindset, it's the beliefs that we have about things that are going to flop us down one side or another. It's going to affect, these perceptions are going to affect the choices that we make. It's going to affect the quality of the experience that we have in these moments. Regardless of the quote-unquote goodness or badness of the circumstances themselves, the quality of our experience is going to change based on the way we perceive them. Right? It's how we view our lives in general and the place that we place ourselves in it that is going to make the difference. Just to, to try to start to develop this, yesterday I had um, breakfast with a friend of mine that I haven't seen in a long time. He moved up to Seattle. But the interesting thing was is that I was thinking about him over the last week, and then all of a sudden he called and he said, Hey, can you have breakfast with me? What, you're in town? He goes, yeah, I'm in town for, for June. I have some work to do down here. So it was weird. I thought of him, and there he was on the telephone, right? And uh, so we had breakfast on, on yesterday morning over at Bravo Burger, our old haunt over there next to the old effect location. And as we're talking, you know, we're catching up on things, and he says, hey, do you ever see anybody from, we were in a church 20 years ago together, do you ever see anybody from that church? And I said, well, I'm very few people. You know, just uh, every once in a while I'll see somebody or talk to somebody. And he asked if the pastor who was there, his name is Dave as well. Too many Daves in this world. <laughs> you ever see Dave? Is Dave still the pastor there? I goes, yeah, absolutely. He's the pastor. We were talking about him a little bit. Not five minutes later, Dave is standing at the table saying hi to us. <laughs> I mean, it was just the weirdest, weirdest thing. We're talking about it. It's like, what? You know, there he is. You know, and so we talked. He was having a little men's Bible study over, you know, on the other side of the of the restaurant. And then a couple more guys come over, and we're all talking. And then so they they fade back. We continue our, continue our conversation. And he said, Hey, you know, do any of the old CMC people come to the effect? And I said, You know, there's not too many of those. We got, you know, we've got uh, Scott and we've got Polly. Sometimes Polly's husband Steve comes, but there's really not too many that come from the effect. Oh, there's one other guy that, that uh, used to come. His name is Bill. 
And oh, how's Bill doing? Well, he moved to North Carolina, you know, he's married now, and he's actually just got a gig as a pastor, and so he's doing this. And we're talking about Bill and everything, catching up, and then we say goodbye, and I'm heading on down the road where I need to go. My phone lights up, it's Bill on the phone. Now, one coincidence, two coincidence, three coincidence. See, now it had my attention. You should have heard me when I saw his name on the phone. He's like, you got to be kidding me. I answered the phone. Are you for real? It's like the weirdest way to answer a telephone call from West Virginia. He probably thought I was on something. But, um, you know, it, it's just so interesting. Now, you probably have all experienced these kinds of things, right? And, and you experience the threeness of things that really kind of get your attention and lock in. When I got home, I was telling Mary this whole story, and she just lit up because she loves this stuff. So I was, oh, what do you think it means? What does it mean? You know? I'm thinking, I don't know if it means anything, you know, but what does it mean? You know, we want to have meaning in these things. We want to think about you know, these things as having some sort of intrinsic meaning, maybe some message for us, something important that we're supposed to get. You know? And if you think about it rationally, because you know, that's what we do and that's what I do, you know, it's either a coincidence or it's a message from God, you know. Either it has meaning because it's a message or it's just a coincidence and it doesn't. And we kind of set up these poles, these dualistic poles, you know, coincidence or not, meaningful or not. Marion, a few years ago, started, you know, just randomly seeing the number 1111 on the, on the clock, you know, it would be 1111, 11 11. And she was seeing it over and over again. And then she told me about it, and I started seeing it over and over again. And she's thinking, you know, I think this means something. So she looks it up. Guess what? It's a thing. Repeating numbers are sometimes called angel numbers. And there's this whole, like, subculture about seeing repeating numbers. And each number means something, you know, in the, in the numerology and, and this and that. And it's, it's angels talking, and it's this, and it's encouragement, and it's watch out for danger, and all these sorts of things. And you can really go deep into this because it's all out there. And yeah, just look it up. Repeating numbers, seeing repeating numbers, and you'll see what I'm talking about. And when it's stated just that way, it's so easy to dismiss. You know, it's kind of even easy to mock, right? It's like, oh, come on, you've got to be kidding me. And once again, we're getting into that, is it a coincidence or is it a meaning? What's going on here? There is a, a whole religious philosophy that is trying to make sense of religious language. And religious language, by its very definition, is so difficult because it's trying to describe something that is ineffable, something that is infinite, something that by definition doesn't stand within the laws of physics and time and space that allows us to be able to actually describe it with a finite language and a finite brain. And so some of these philosophers have gotten to the point where they've said, okay, if something can be verified, then it's true. If something cannot be falsified, then it's meaningless. Right? See, see where they're going with this? Logically, it makes total sense. If you can't verify it, then it doesn't have any meaning. If you can't falsify it, it doesn't have any meaning. Therefore, ergo, religious language is all meaningless because it can't be verified and it can't be falsified. So that's one end of the far end of the spectrum. On the other end, I've got a friend named Russ who sees messages in every billboard and license plate he passes on the street. 
you know, and he's always excited to tell you about what he saw in this billboard and what it means and what God is telling him to do today. That's the other side. You know, is it this or is it that? Is it true or is it false? Who's right? Who's wrong? You know, for me, my take, especially with the numbers, is that, yeah, it's probably kind of like a selective perception. You know how you decide you're going to get a Ford Focus car? And then you see Ford Focuses on the freeway everywhere you go. You're just always seeing Ford Focus. You're, you're kind of tuned into that. I can imagine that seeing the numbers is the same thing. Marion told me she was seeing these numbers. And so now when I look at the clock and it's there, I see it. You know. But I'll tell you what has happened. Seeing these numbers has become kind of a running thing with Marion and me. It's like a cause for excitement. Hey, honey, take a look at the clock. You know, it's 11-11. And she's, ah, and she laughs. And we... You know, it has become a touch point for us. It's become almost a call to prayer. It's become a reminder for me to slow down and to consider again the unseen things in life, the unseen things in my day, to consider the possibility that God is speaking to me through my cell phone. It can't be verified. It can't be falsified but it's full of meaning. Do you see that? It's full of meaning for me and my wife. It's full of meaning for me just as a call back to center again. What happened at the breakfast yesterday was full of meaning for me. It was a source of excitement. It was a source of wonder. It was just this playful sense. It made my morning as much as seeing my friend that I haven't seen in such a long time. Can't be verified. Can't be falsified but full of meaning. You see, between the poles of what we say is right or wrong, true or false, meaningful or not, accurate or not, there is a middle way. There's a third way that moves between them. And it finds meaning where possibly the extremes will not. Or it'll find a different kind of meaning that is much more intrinsic to God's nature at the same time. Yesterday morning, these coincidences meant something to me. Today, I want to get more practical with all of this and talk to you about how this oscillation, these principles, are really working me right now, especially. We've made no um, secret about the fact that we're in a transition here. We just moved here. There's extra financial pressure. We closed our treatment center. You know, there's there's a, a a real move here at the effect to kind of redefine ourselves and for the first time to really promote ourselves. We've never done that before. We started with the idea of attraction, not promotion, and we haven't really promoted. And we know we need to do that, but this is not something that I'm good at. You know, Believe it or not, I'm painfully introverted. You know, I can do this on TV, but uh, you know, it's just like t- the thought of promoting, the thought of going out and marketing has been something that I've got a lot of resistance for. And so we've hired some, some marketing people to help us who know what they're doing. And we've been talking to them, and I've been talking to them primarily, these, these coaches and, and these people who know what they're doing. And they're trying to pull me, and, and by extension us, into this new direction, trying to get us thinking in new ways that will allow us to really break through and do the things that we want to do. And uh, Friday, I was told to read a certain book, and the title of the book is Be Obsessed or Be Average. You know, that kind of tells you what you need to know right there, right? 
and I was told, read the intro and the first chapter. And so at least I got through the intro, and I wanted to read you just a couple of paragraphs from this introduction and, and just kind of start here and see where we end up. Be obsessed or be average. My entire life, people have been telling me that my obsession with success is a bad thing. I've been called a work addict, compulsive, obsessive, never satisfied, out of balance, tyrannical, and impossible to work with. I've been told I'm too demanding and that I have unreasonable expectations for myself and others. I have had professionals suggest that I have ADD, ADHD, OCD, and much more. Friends and family have told me to chill out, calm down, and take it easy, relax. The reality is that no matter how much I have tried to squelch or control my obsession with success, it has been the one thing most responsible for my being where I am today. My obsessions have taken me from lost and broken in every way at the age of 25 to owning five privately held companies with sales of 100 million a year, being named one of the top 10 most influential CEOs in the world, and being a New York Times best-selling author of five books, an internationally acclaimed speaker, an attentive husband and a doting father of two girls, and a contributing member of society. I'm not bragging. <laughs> I just want to make perfectly clear that what I've achieved in life is not because of some particular invention, luck of timing, inside deal, or special intelligence. I am where I am today only because I embraced my obsession with success. That being said, before I gave myself permission to fully own my obsession and harness it for good, denying my obsession almost killed me. I want to give you permission to be completely and unapologetically obsessed too. Regardless of who you are, where you come from, what your family is like, or what cr how crazy your big dream is. All right. Now, after 25 years of studying contemplative spirituality, <laughs> that's like hitting a brick wall at 70 miles an hour for me. I mean, my gosh, how jarring that kind of language is. You know, I'm not obviously completely unfamiliar with it but I have been like training myself all this time working down the ladder of success as a pastor making less and less money and yet here is this need for us to think differently to do something differently and here comes this this freight train you know it's so hard for me to I guess accept the implication that the definition of success is monetary, that it's external. You know, all of these things are, are difficult for me to deal with. Now, it might seem that I'm setting up a straw man here, a real easy target that I can knock down, but I want to tell you that's not what I'm doing because this man has a half a billion dollar real estate portfolio, not to mention all the other companies and streams of income. He's got a point that he's making here, and I need to listen to it in a very real way, but I don't know what to do with it yet. I'm not going to tell you that I've got answers here. I'm working this out in real time with y'all, okay? But it's important for us to have the discussion, and at least I can tell you where, where I think this is all heading. You know, it's, it raises all these big questions. How does this obsession that he's talking about, and maybe that's not the right word for us here today, how does really working hard 
with goals and expected outcomes and milestones the way that we do in the secular world fit into our spiritual program. And remember what I have been studying, what I've been teaching you now for years. Just a couple of weeks ago, we read from Thomas Merton. Let's revisit that for a second, shall we? So we can get the whole balance here. You can go back to your your inserts here. Here's Thomas Merton from the inner experience. He writes, Do not then stir yourself up to useless interior activities. Avoid everything that will bring unnecessary complications into your life. Live in as much peace and quiet and retirement as you can. And do not go out of your way to get involved in labors and duties, no matter how much glory they may seem to give to God. Do the tasks appointed you as perfectly as you can with disinterested love and a great peace in order to show your desire pleasing God. And we had to define disinterested love because that's a tough one. But disinterested love would be love that is devoid of agenda, of the view toward outcome. It just immerses, engages in the relationship of the task at hand for its own sake to be completely present. Okay? So do your tasks as perfectly as you can with disinterested love and great peace in order to show your desire of pleasing God. Love and serve him peacefully in all your work. works. Preserve recollection of him, recalling where that inner connection is. Do what you do quietly and without fuss. Seek solitude as much as you can. Dwell in the silence of your own soul and rest there in the simple and simplifying light which God is infusing into you. Do not make the mistake of aspiring to the spectacular experiences that you read about. None of those graces can sanctify you nearly so well as the obscure and purifying light and love of God which is given you to no other end than to make you perfect in his love. Oh, and be completely obsessed at the same time. Left, hard left, hard right. Dualistic. What do you do with something like this? But here's the other rub. This is Merton. Merton wrote over 60 books and hundreds of poems, hundreds of articles, got involved in the 60s in the anti-nuclear and the civil rights movements through his writing, was castigated for that. Thomas Merton, who arguably is the most influential Catholic author of the 20th century, Think maybe he was a little obsessed about his writing? I mean, how could he not be? How could he not have constantly be thinking about the next book and thinking about what he's writing and editing it? And as he got more famous through the decades, you know, working with publishers and doing all the things that he needed to do. And yet he writes this as well, right in the middle of all of that. What's, what's the deal? How do we do this? You know? Now, this obsessed author, the first one that I read for, he also wrote a book called If You're Not First, You're Last. Okay, that's right in character, right? That's, that's very consistent. But what did Jesus say? Look at Matthew 20, 16. So the last shall be first, and the first last. At Luke 14, verse 10. But when you are invited, go and recline at the last place. So that when the one who has invited you comes, he may say to you, friend, move up higher. Then you will have honor in the sight of all who are at the table with you. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled. And he who humbles himself will be exalted. The exact opposite of what the obsessive author is saying. And yet, let's consider Jesus for a second. Was anybody more radical 
more extreme than Jesus? We just had communion. He told his followers to eat his flesh and drink his blood. You know how many followers he left, he lost that day? (laughs) Saying that to a Jew without any preparation, they taking it literally, oh my gosh, cannibalism, are you kidding me? that's, That's a capital offense. Think about his life. Think about the way he lived. He lived so far outside of the Jewish norm as to be ludicrous in many ways. Voluntary poverty, itinerant, working outside the home, just living unmarried. For a Jewish man to be unmarried, the tradition is, as far as we know, not have a wife, not have family, not have the clan that was the center of Jewish life. He was extreme. He worked hard. He worked hard to get across. He wasn't afraid of breaking the boundaries that he needed to break to get home his message of love. He touched lepers before he healed them. Breaking all these boundaries. Allowing himself to get put into a position where he was finally executed by the state. That's extreme. His family thought he was nuts. They thought he was obsessive. They wanted to take him home, literally, and have him committed. That's in the scriptures, if you're not familiar with it. They wanted him to be taken out because they thought he was crazy and he was bringing shame to the family, they felt at the time. At the same time, he's saying, the first will be last and the last will be first. You know, how do we... How about Paul? (laughs) Paul of Tarsus. You know, you could arguably say he didn't change personalities, he changed sides. You know, he was crazily obsessive about persecuting the very people that he was proselytizing for after his Damascus experience. Another absolutely extreme personality. And yet also teaching the same message that it's not by works, it's by this, this free gift of grace in this mysterious way that we are saved, we are united with our Father. Now, is it the case of a bunch of people saying one thing and doing something else? You know, I feel like I'm being pulled side to side here, and, and, and this oscillating perception has been kind of driving me a little bit crazy over these last few weeks as I'm trying to wrap my head around what it is I'm supposed to do here. And like I said, I don't pretend to have an answer for you. I don't even pretend that scripture is going to answer this question specifically. But what I do see and what I do believe to my core is that scripture is giving us guiding principles that we can use. Guiding principles that can take us someplace we need to go. Jesus, being the kind of teacher he is and right in Jewish tradition, is not going to let us off the horns of the dilemma. He's not going to let us off the hook. He doesn't do that. He doesn't flop down one side or the other that way. He says, I'm not here to abolish the law, but I'm here to fulfill it, and I'm here to fulfill it in a very specific way. And let me tell you about that. Because you think this way, of old, of tradition, but I'm going to tell you, it looks more like this. And he's constantly moving us, moving that perception back and forth, trying to get us to get comfortable with the way this works, the way that we're going to be buffeted about in day-to-day life. We fixate on the tasks. We fixate 
on the accuracy or non-accuracy of something, the truth or falsehood of it. We fixate on outcomes and the specific road to get there. But God, according to Jesus, is more fixated on the nature of the process. How we conduct ourselves through whatever process that we set up for ourselves. That's where he's going. You know? I've said in here so many times, this, this notion of God's will that is so hard for us to get our arms wrapped around. We think that God has this perfect plan for us, this perfect career and spouse and, and ministry and all these things, and we've got to somehow figure this out when I think all the time, God doesn't really care what we do. He cares deeply how we do what we do. And what he's telling us is, with this right how, with this focus on love, focus on unity, focus on connection, any what is going to end up right in the center of my will. We're focused on the wrong things. We're focused here or here. When God is pulling everything to a balanced center, Jesus is pulling everything to a balanced center. Somehow we need to do the same thing. When I'm getting my head just snapped back and forth by these competing, seemingly competing principles, is there a way to pull them to the center into a balanced whole where I can live the how? As I do the things that need to be done for our body, for my family, for myself, these are the choices, these are the decisions that we all have to make, isn't it? If we think that our work is at odds with our spirituality, how in the world are we going to be able to thread this needle? Jesus is giving us a third way, a way through the middle, that will help us to pull all this together. Working hard, striving for an outcome, striving for something that we believe in, is neither good nor bad, I'm thinking. It's neutral. Likewise, inaction, what Merton was talking about, taking back, coming back into a place of repose, also neutral. We bring the valence to it. We bring the goodness or the badness, if you will, to it by our motivations, by the reason that we're trying to do what we're trying to do. But it's this infusion of love, infusion of the motivation of connection, of relationship that purifies, I think, the motivation, purifies and maintains the balance. I wanted to read you a couple of paragraphs from, this time, Richard Rohr, because I think he captures what we're talking about here. He says, the Christian way is to risk the attachments of love. Hey, that's a risk, isn't it? As soon as you open up your heart, as soon as you let yourself become attached to even a puppy, you know, you're risking something. You're risking getting your heart broken. The Christian way is to keep risking, to risk the attachments of love, and then keep growing in love. All of life is a lesson in learning how to love more deeply and truly. As we start trying to love, we begin to realize that we're actually not loving very well. We are mostly meeting our own needs. The word for this is codependency. This kind of love is still impure and self-seeking and thus is really not love at all. So we have to pull back and learn the great art 
of detachment, which is not aloofness, but the purifying of attachment. Why are we working so hard? Is this a codependent motivation? Are we seeking to serve ourselves? Are we vampire-like, trying to suck our identity out of our work, out of a cause, out of relationships, out of each other? Or is it some other reason? Are we doing what we do for something larger than ourselves, or is it still focused codependently right here? See, love is going to be the dividing line, the answer to these questions. Our religion is neither solely attachment or detachment. It's a dance between the two. It's neither entirely isolation, as symbolized by the desert, nor is it complete engagement, as symbolized by the city. Jesus moves back and forth between desert and city. In the city, he feels himself losing perspective, love, and center. So Jesus goes out to the desert just to discover the real again. And when Jesus is in the desert, his passionate union with the Father drives him back to the people in the city. Here's the oscillation we're talking about. We have to learn to let it play out in our lives as Jesus did, to oscillate with it, to continue to find the center and the balance as life has its way with us. The creative, transformative dance between attachment and detachment is sometimes called the third way. It is the middle way between fight and flight. Some prefer to take on the world, to fight it, change it, fix it, rearrange it. Others deny that there is a problem at all. Everything is beautiful, they say, and look the other way. Both instincts avoid holding the tension, the pain, and the essentially tragic nature of human existence. Really easy to flop down on one side or another. That's the completely relaxed position. But to hold the sacred tension in the middle, to continue to expend the energy to stay balanced, to bring yourself to every single situation, every single moment, and choose based on what's really in front of you, not just on some pre-existing conditions that you have set up in advance, that takes energy. Gets easier as you move through, but it requires your balancing every single moment. The contemplative stance is the third way. We stand in the middle, neither taking the world on from another power position, nor denying it for fear of the pain it will bring. We hold the hardness of reality and the suffering of the world until it transforms us, knowing that we are both complicit in evil and, com and can participate in wholeness and holiness. Once we can stand in that third spacious way, either directly fighting or fleeing, we are in the place of grace, out of which genuine newness can come. This is where creativity and new forms of life and healing can emerge. I don't have this figured out yet. Lots of internal resistance that I need to process. But I know that the balance for me and for I think for every single one of us is going to come from this middle way. If I can stop thinking in terms of just obsessive growth and work, if I can show up to find new ways to spread this message that I love and so believe in, because I believe people need it. If I can stop thinking about it in terms of outcome and show up to the process of doing what I love, offline reimagining the process, perhaps, and then showing up to that and doing what I love 
then others may still say that I'm obsessed or working too hard, but I'm going to know the difference. From the inside looking out, I'm going to feel the difference. I'm going to know that the tail's not wagging the dog. I'm going to know that I'm attached to something that is greater than myself. I'm going to know, and I can check myself, that my motives are still pure. They haven't slid into codependency and self-serving. Even if I'm doing things that to me right now seem codependent and self-serving, there's got to be this middle way that infuses new life into these activities that, for lack of a better word, sanctifies them. That's what we're after here. So instead of having to choose between warrior and gardener, we use that, those images over and over, between this obsessive striving and a patient serenity with a gratitude for what is right here and right now, not thinking about outcomes, what is here right now, the gardener just putting the seed in the soil, doing what he needs to do, and then just going and taking a nap because there's nothing else to do but to be grateful for wind and weather and the forces of God and nature that are going to bring the crop home to him. If we can do this, we can be able to work hard, but without identifying with the work itself, without thinking we are the work, we are the job, we are the outcome, the accomplishments, the roles that we play, we can keep that separate and still show up and work really hard, accomplish what we need to accomplish to build the roof over the people that we're trying to serve. And maybe instead of choosing to be either a warrior or to be happy, I and we can be a happy warrior. How about that? Let me finish with one little piece, if I can find it. There it is. When I was in college and I was studying English Lit, there's a useful degree, right? English Lit. I remember a friend saying, what are you going to do, open a poem repair shop? (laughs) One of my favorite uh, poets was William Wordsworth, you know, the great uh, 19th century English poet. And he actually coined the, the phrase, the happy warrior. But just listen to three stanzas from his poem. Who is the happy warrior? Who is he that every man in arms should wish to be? It is the generous spirit who, when brought among the tasks of real life, hath wrought upon the plan that pleased his boyish thought whose high endeavors are an inward light that makes the path before him always bright, who, if he rise to station of command, rises by open means, and there will stand on honorable terms, or else retire, and in himself possess his own desire, who comprehends his trust, and to the same keeps faithful with the singleness of aim, and therefore does not stoop nor lie in wait for wealth or honors or for worldly state, who whether praise of him must walk the earth forever and to noble deeds give birth, or he must fall to sleep without his fame and leave a dead, unprofitable name, finds comfort in himself and in his cause, and while the mortal mist is gathering, draws his breath in confidence of heaven's applause. This is the happy warrior. This is he that every man in arms should wish to be. Let's pray.
Father, we may not know how to do this, so we need your help. So we're going to ask for it. We want to be happy warriors. We want to be those who can perform what is necessary, what is needed, who can do the difficult tasks, stand where we need to stand, retire where we need to retire, but never forget who we really are in you. Never forget where the power really comes from, where the breath comes from. We want to be focused and balanced and yet still smart, still working for the things that need to be worked for. Father, help me, help all of us push through the resistance that we have to new things, difficult things, things that don't compute. Help us to find your wisdom in the center of everything so that we can push through and we can enjoy whatever it is that we purpose to do, that seems right for us to do, so that we can serve each other and our families as best as we can. Thank you for never holding back in scripture or in any other way from showing us what is real, being absolutely real with us, even at your own expense. Thank you, Lord, for that honesty in your scripture and in the lives of the people who are connected to you. Help us to be like that. We love you, Father. Thank you for loving us. And we can only do this at all because you did it first. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's all stand.